you guys can make your way in and find a seat. I'd like to especially make sure to welcome anybody who's a, a guest here this morning. We're so glad that you could be here with us. Um, we've been in the middle of a series called I Am, where we're looking at the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes. And these are some of the most powerful and famous things that Jesus says when he walks on earth. But these I Am statements that Jesus shares with us aren't just to give us more information, to give us facts about Jesus. It's like Jesus is taking us by the face and looking us in the eyes and saying, this is who I am, and I want you to know me. Jesus wants to be known by you. He so desperately wants you to know him. I want to start off by telling you guys a story about what, at that this time in my life, at another time in my life, when I was 16, on a hot day in Budapest, Hungary, um, seemed like the most important door in my life at the time. I was on a missions trip. We had um, decided to go on a missions trip with an organization called Teen World Outreach, and we went to Lima, New York for a week-long training time. And our, our missions trip, there was like 10 different teams going on missions trips. Ours was a little bit unique compared to everyone else's. Everyone else was doing like either VBS kind of ministry where they were doing like summer camps and that kind of stuff where they were doing building projects. So like during the day, during the training time, these teams were like either learning how to do their VBS stuff in their camps or they were learning how to build with, with whatever materials they had in the, in the place that they were going. My team was going on a mission trip where we were going to join the professional basketball league in Europe for like six weeks or something like that. So we were playing basketball during the day. So at the end of that week, we were actually like pretty tired from playing basketball for probably like eight hours a day. And then we had our commissioning service, and then they put us on a bus. They sent us off to New York City. Then we get to New York City, we get on a flight, and we fly all night long to Budapest, Hungary. So we get off, off the plane, and we're pretty tired, and we were told that there was going to be a train station pretty close to the airport. Well, apparently in Budapest, pretty close means something very different than it means in Warsaw. So the, the train station is like a mile away. And so we all have these giant duffel bags, and then we all have backpacks, and then we also had a washing machine box that was filled with all of our sleeping bags and pillows and like these yoga mats that we were gonna sleep on. So we're like, how are we gonna get this washing machine box to the train station? Like we thought it was like across the street. So a friend and I, we like took our bags, and some of our bags had like uh, handles on the end. So he like took two of the, straps like this, and I took two of the straps like this, and then another friend put the washing machine box on the, on the bags, and we kind of shuffled through Budapest, Hungary like this to get all of our stuff there. So we get to the train station, and then all we had on a piece of paper was the name of the, the city that we were going to. We knew it was like four hours away. So we go to the ticket counter, and no one speaks English, and we're like, oh boy, this is going to be fun. So we're trying to explain to them where we need to go, and finally we just hand them the piece of paper, and they say, oh, okay because very clearly we didn't know how to say the name of the city we were going to. So they, we buy tickets to get on this train, and then we said, when does, the, when does the train leave? And they said, four hours. So we said, okay, we've got four hours here. And so we're starving, we've flown all night. So we put all of our stuff in a pile, we left two guys to watch over our stuff, and we go to try and get some food. Now this train station is huge. It's like maybe like the size of like six football fields or something like that. And on one end of the train station 
It's like this, it's got this big arch ceiling and these brick walls. On one end, there's these little arches that the train comes in and out of. And then all the way, like far, far away, maybe three or four football fields away, is a place where you can get some food. So we leave two guys with our stuff, and we go to get our food. And so we order our food, and we're standing in line waiting to get our food, and there's like an announcement that comes over the loudspeaker. Of course, we don't understand any of it because it's in Hungarian, and we don't speak Hungarian. But then the last phrase was a city that we recognized. It was the city that we were going to. And we thought, like, there's no way that they're saying this train is leaving right now. And we turn and we look across the train station to see our friends frantically waving their hands at us and the train starting to pull away. So we drop our food right there and run as fast as we can across this train station to try and get our stuff and make it onto this train. And the train, of course, is picking up speed to drive away like a train does. And there's only one door that you can get through to get onto this train. So my friends who were over there, they had already grabbed their bags, and they jumped on the train, like, eh, we're out of here, see you guys. They're like, oh my goodness. So we're running over, we're grabbing our bags, and the door is getting further and further away. And I'm the last one, I grab the last bag, and I take off running, and I get to the, to the opening for the train, and I hand the guy through the window my bag, and he pulls it in. I take my backpack off, because there's other people trying to get on the train too, I take my backpack off, I hand that to him, he pulls it through the window, and then he, my other friend says, the washing machine box, the sleeping bags, and I look back and I'm like, we're going to go six weeks with no sleeping bags and nothing to sleep on, no pillows, I'm like, I'll go get it. So I go running back to get this washing machine box, and I pick it up and I got it over my head, and I'm like running through the train station with this giant washing machine box, trying to get to this one door that seemed like the most important door in my life on that afternoon. And I see my uncle and my whole team, they all got their heads hanging out the window of this train. And my uncle's leading the trip and he says, drop the box, drop the box. And I realize there's no way I'm going to be able to make it to this door to get on this train. So I drop the box and I'm running as fast as I can to try and get to this door. But really I'm running as fast as I can at a brick wall because the train goes through this little arch, and there's a brick wall there. So I'm running as fast as I can, straight at this brick wall. And all of a sudden, I see my, my team's heads go in the train, because they're about to go through this little archway. And I realize, there's no way I'm making it onto this train. There's no way I'm going to make it to this door. And then I remember that I just handed my friend my backpack, which has my wallet and my passport in it. So I'm in, a, I'm in a city that I've never been in before. I don't speak the language. I don't know anyone. My team is on a train to go four hours away. And then I see the back of the train. And I look at the back of the train. It looks kind of like a, a train from like out west back in the day. And there's like a little porch thing on the back. And there's a little railing. And I think to myself, maybe I can make it to the last train and jump onto the, onto the little porch back there. So I'm running as fast as I can at this brick wall. And I'm like fast approaching this brick wall, and I jump and I dive, and I grab the back rail, and I pull myself onto the train, and I go through what felt like at that time the most important door I ever walked through in my life. But that door really wasn't the most important door in my life. There's a door that's so much more important than that door, even though that felt like it was such an important door on that day, and it was an important door but it wasn't the most important door. Today I'd like to talk to you about the most important door 
in your life. We interact with tons of doors on a daily basis. We don't even hardly think about most of the doors that we interact with. This morning, I got up in my, from my bed, and I walked out of my bedroom through a door. I walked into the bathroom to shave through another door. I came downstairs, and I walked through a doorway to go downstairs. Then I, when I left my house to come to church, I walked out of a doorway. Then I approached my car, and I opened the door, and I got into the car. Then I got to church, and I came out of that door. Then I approached the church, and I came through the front door of the church, and then eventually I came into the sanctuary. And probably most of you probably went through 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 doors already today without even hardly thinking about it at all. At night when I go to bed, I walk around my house, and I lock the door because I want to be careful who comes into my house. When I stay in a hotel, sometimes they have a little peephole in the door so you can look through and see who's on the other side to be careful about who's coming in when somebody knocks. All these doors we interact with, but today I want to talk to you about the most important door in your life, the most important door you will ever interact with. We're going to start reading in John chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 9, and again, this is Jesus speaking. These are, if, if your Bible has red, red letters when Jesus speaks, this is red letter talk right here. This is Jesus looking you in the face and saying, I want you to know me. Not just to know facts about me, not just to know information about me. I want a relationship with you. We're going to start reading in verse 9. This is Jesus. He says, I am the door. The most important door you'll ever interact with in your life. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill, and to destroy. I have come that you may have life, and that you may have it more abundantly. Another version says, I have come that you have, might have life, and have it to the full. To have life to the fullest extent. The first thing that I want you to see in this scripture that we, I just read, is Jesus is our Savior. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In the time that Jesus walked on earth, shepherding was one of the most common professions that there was. There was shepherds all over the place and sheep all over the place. And so when Jesus speaks about shepherds or sheep, he's speaking about something that everyone that he's speaking to would know and understand very, very well. It was very common. But there's not a whole lot of sheep around Warsaw. And there's not a whole lot of shepherds around Warsaw, so sometimes we can miss out on some of the nuances of what Jesus is talking about and what Jesus is saying, and I want to show you a couple, couple of those things. In those days, shepherds sometimes would have their own flock that they would take care of, that they would watch out for. Sometimes there would be shepherds that were hired by people who maybe had some money um, to take care of their, shop, their flock. So sometimes they might be taking care of their own flock, or sometimes they might be taking care of someone else's. And when a shepherd would go to a city, there was something that was called a communal pen. You wouldn't want to take your sheep and walk all through the city with your sheep, so they'd have these communal pens that were outside of the city. And a shepherd could take his sheep, kind of like you can see here in this picture, a shepherd could take his sheep and put his sheep in this communal pen, and they could stay there, and they could stay safe, 
while the shepherd went into town to do all the stuff that the shepherd needed to do. Now, there might be 10 shepherds that were headed to the, the town that day, and they might all drop their sheep at this communal pen. So there could even be like a couple hundred sheep in this pen. When I heard that, I thought to myself, like when the shepherd goes to get his sheep and leave, like how does he know that he's taking his sheep and not the other shepherd's sheep? Like how does he make sure he gets the sheep he's supposed to take and no other sheep? The answer to that question was kind of interesting to me. The answer to that question is the sheep associate the shepherd with being their savior. Maybe the sheep themselves have been saved by the shepherd, or maybe they watch some of their friends be saved by the shepherd. And because of that, they see him as their savior, and they memorize his voice so that all he has to do is call his sheep, and his sheep come running. None of the other sheep that aren't his come, just the sheep that see him as their savior. There's other sheep there that see their shepherd as their savior, and when their shepherd calls, they'll come running. But when this shepherd calls, it's only his sheep that are going to come running because they see him as their savior. Kind of makes me wonder, do you know the Lord's voice in your life that well? When he calls, do you come running? Do you see him as your savior, or are you afraid that he's angry at you? Are you afraid he's frustrated with you? When you hear his voice, do you come running? There's a few other things in this short verse that I want you to see. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. If anyone enters by me. Now, the world that we live in today, the culture that we live in, seems like it wants everything to be fluid. Like nothing to be firm, nothing to be concrete. Everything is kind of like a fluid idea, kind of ambiguous. When it comes to Jesus and these seven statements that he makes, something you need to understand is there is nothing fluid about Jesus. Jesus is not a fluid concept. Jesus is concrete. He is firm. He is the best foundation you could ever ask for for your life. Jesus is the best foundation. When everything around you seems like it's shaking, everything around you seems uncertain and unsure, you can count on Jesus. He is a firm foundation, the best foundation to plant your life on. Jesus is not a fluid concept. And here he says, when we come to him, we'll be saved. And what you need to understand about this is Jesus is not a way to be saved. Jesus is the way to be saved. In fact, he is the only way to be saved. You can't act good enough to earn salvation. In fact, the Bible says your good efforts look like filthy rags. That's not so good. Our good efforts aren't really worth a whole lot. You can't find another God to be saved. There is no other way to be saved except through Jesus. You can't be a good person to get saved. There is no other way. I was, one time somebody sent me a clip of someone who was like, used to be one of the most famous talk show hosts, Oprah Winfrey, talking. And she said, because we're all from so many diverse backgrounds and have so many different experiences in our life, there has to be many ways to God. And you know, I know Oprah's like super lovable and fun, and you get a car, and you get a car, and she's giving everything away to everyone, and she's super lovable, but she's wrong. 
Like she's just horribly wrong, misleading all kinds of people. There is only one way to God, and it's through the door named Jesus. We all do have different backgrounds and diverse backgrounds and experiences, but there is only one way to God, and it's through the door named Jesus. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So we have many on the road to destruction, and only a few on the road to eternal life. It can feel like that sometimes in our life. We can look around, maybe you're at your workplace, trying your best to live for Jesus, and you look around and you feel like, is there anyone else even on this road with me, or is it just me? If you find yourself in that place and you feel that way, that's not such a bad road to be on. It's not such a bad feeling to have, even if it feels lonely, because it's the road that leads to life. So Jesus is saying that he is our Savior when he says he's the door. He's also saying that he is our protector. Jesus is our protector. Back to the analogy of of sheep that Jesus was using. So I said that when the shepherds would go to town or go to the city or go to a village, There would be these communal pens, and these communal pens where they would leave their sheep while they went into the city to do their business. But then the the shepherds would go, and they would call the sheep, and their sheep come running because they see him as their savior, and then they would take their sheep out to the countryside. And the reason they would go out to the countryside is because that's a place where the sheep can receive the nourishment that they need. They can experience the life that they were designed by God to experience, life in a pasture is like heaven for a sheep. So that's where they're headed, is out to receive the nourishment they need from the grass that they can get. And they usually will go to some place where there's water so they can get the hydration that they need so they can have that life that God intended them to have. But when they head out to the countryside, there's also predators that are in the countryside. And the shepherd knows that. And the shepherd's going to try and take them to a place where the, the fewest predators are to try and take them to the safest place, but it doesn't change the fact that there are still going to be predators there that are trying to get the sheep, and the sheep are kind of vulnerable. But predators oftentimes will sleep during the day, and they come out at night. Predators usually hang out and chill during the day, lay low. Sometimes they'll sleep, but then they come out and they'll look for an opportunity to attack at night. Isn't that true in our life, too, that when things are going well, it seems like the enemy will just leave us be, but then when we're in a dark place, when we're struggling, that's when the enemy is going to show up in our life. So the shepherd knows that the night is coming. The shepherd knows that the time when the sheep are going to be vulnerable is coming. So during the daytime, when he knows the sheep are safe, he starts to build a pen. I call it the countryside pen. He starts to build a pen that can protect the sheep. He starts to gather rocks because rocks are the things that are available. So he starts to gather rocks during the day and he starts to build a place where he can protect the sheep. If he's in a place that's particularly vulnerable to those that would be coming to try and attack the sheep, sometimes they'll even go and get 
thorns and briars and thistles, and they'll bring those things and they'll put them on top of those walls, almost like we would use barbed wire today to try and protect the sheep so that nothing could get in. And then you look at that pen and you think to yourself, like, well, there is kind of a hole in the pen, so there is kind of a place where, like, a wolf might be able to come in and get a sheep or something like that. So, like, what's the deal with that? The shepherd builds the tent, the pen, and then the shepherd himself becomes the door. The shepherd himself literally becomes the door. He lays in the opening of the pen so that he becomes the thing that decides what comes into the sheep's life and what does not come into the to sheep's life. So when Jesus says, I am the door, he's talking about this opening right here in this pen. He says, I am the thing that is going to protect you in your life. I will lay in the gap, I will lay in the opening, and I will protect you, but you're going to have to submit to the shepherd if you want his protection in your life. You can't just go run around and do your own thing. You have to be willing to submit to his care and his guidance. When he says, when he calls and says it's time to come into the pen, you got to be willing to come into the pen and to let him protect you. I heard a story this week about a shepherd that was caring for a, a herd of, sh- of sheep, and one of, the, one of the sheep wandered off. How many of you have wandered off in your life a time or two? Maybe something enticed you and you went after it. Maybe you kind of got lost on accident. You don't know, but we all have wandered off. I know I have wandered off a time or two in my life. Well, this sheep wandered off, and the shepherd didn't notice that it was missing at first, but when he did, he went after the sheep. When he found the sheep, the sheep had wandered up onto a ridge, and then he had slipped and fallen off a ridge and fell down into a ravine. When he fell down into the ravine, the sheep actually fell between two huge boulders. So the sheep falls between these two huge boulders, and its legs are kind of dangling, and there's not a whole lot that the sheep can do. He's like stuck there. So he wiggles to try and get himself out, but when he wiggles, he gets wedged down further between these two boulders. Then he takes a deep breath, and he's like kind of freaking out, and he's scared. He takes a deep breath, and when he releases his breath, his rib cage narrows, and he falls even further in between these two boulders. Now the sheep can't even get a full breath. His breath is getting kind of shallow. He's starting to freak out even more. And he thinks, this might be it for me. Like, I might die here. The shepherd finds the sheep, and he comes after him. He looks at him like, how in the world did you get yourself down into this place? So he climbs down there, and he's trying to get the sheep out, but he's having a really hard time getting the sheep out because he's gotten wedged further and further between these two boulders. The shepherd realizes that the sheep's breath is getting further and further apart and more and more shallow, and this sheep very likely is about to suffocate. So he tries to pull it out one more time. He can't get it out. Finally, he reaches down. He grabs the sheep by the back legs, and with everything he's got, he rips the sheep out from between these two boulders. In the process, he broke most of the sheep's ribs, and he ripped the sheep's legs out of the socket and broke his pelvis. The sheep is screaming. The sheep is in horrible pain. The shepherd takes the sheep, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he brings it back to the pen, to the place where he can protect it. And he starts caring for the sheep. He starts comforting the sheep. He goes and gets grass for the sheep because the sheep can't go get grass for itself. He goes and he gets water for the sheep 
because the sheep can't get water for itself, and he cares for the sheep. He spends more time with that sheep than any of the other sheep, nursing it back to health to care for them. That's actually a true story. Man, how much does that sound like us, like what we've done in our life? We wander off. Maybe we saw something that looked exciting, something that seemed fun, something that seemed like it was going to be a good opportunity, a good night, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves stuck in a mess, stuck in a hole, and we look around and we think to ourselves, like, how did I not see this coming? Like, how did I not know that this is how this is going to end? And then Jesus, in his goodness, the good shepherd comes and he rips us out of that place, but sometimes ripping us out of the place that we've gotten ourselves into hurts. It hurts a lot. We're wounded. We're left kind of a mess from the, the stuff that we've been involved in. And then Jesus nurses us back to health. He brings us the nourishment that we need. He brings us the water that we need. And he cares for us. Sometimes what God is going to have to do in our life isn't going to always make sense to us. Why would you break my legs? Why would you break my ribs? But he had to do it. We didn't understand why, but he had to do it in order to rescue us from the place that we had gotten ourselves into. Sometimes you're not going to always trust what God has to do in your life to rescue you, but you can always count on the fact that you can trust him. He always has your best interest in mind. He's always looking to protect you because that's who he is. It's his nature. He can't help but do it. It's just who he is. The third thing that we see in this portion of Scripture is Jesus is our peace. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Pasture in this portion of Scripture represents peace. And I was able to see that pretty pretty obviously, but then I looked at the part where he says, he will go in and out. And I didn't really know what that was about, and I wasn't really sure what he was saying there. So I started reading what some theologians and some commentators had to say, and I found one that I really liked what he had to say. He was talking about Noah. He was talking about the faith that it took for Noah to trust God with his life. I mean, think about this for a second. When God told Noah to build an ark because rain was coming and a flood was coming, there had never been a flood before and there had never been rain before. That's actually the first time the word rain was ever used. Noah had never seen rain. It was just dew that watered the ground up until that point. So what kind of faith does it take to trust God that this new thing that you don't even know what it is and has never existed before is going to come to earth and it's going to be a crazy catastrophe? Just an incredible amount of faith to trust God. But there was only one door on the ark, and Noah was going in and out of that door every day, trying to be obedient to God, trying to do what God was asking him to do, going into the ark and preparing it, coming out of the ark, and then eventually he was getting animals and bringing them to the ark. Noah was doing all of this in faith. But then it says that one day Noah went in the ark and God shut him in. It was God that shut him in. So what Noah, in fact, was doing was saying, God, I'm letting you be the one who decides when I go in and when I go out. I'm letting you be the one who decides when, the, when I can go in the ark, when I can come out. I'm letting you be the one who decides when the door needs to be open and when the door needs to be shut. If you want Jesus to be your peace, you have to make him the Lord of your life. 
It's great that he's our Savior, and thank God that he's our Savior. But if you want peace in your life, you have to be willing to make him your Lord. He's willing to be your Savior, but are you willing to make him your Lord? Are you willing to let him be the one that decides when you go in, when you come out? Are you willing to let him be the one that says, it's time to go into the pen, and I want you to stay there. I know you don't understand. I know it doesn't make sense to you. I know you want to do something else, but I want you to stay here so I can protect you. Are you willing for Jesus to be the Lord of your life? A lot of times, I think, if you could just picture a door here for a second with a door frame, we kind of want to stand like this, like one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. We want the benefit of being in the kingdom of God, but we want what we perceive to be the comfort of being in the world. And the Lord is telling you today, if you're not careful, you're going to get yourself shut in that door, because I'm going to shut it when it's time to shut it. And you might not like the outcome if you find yourself shut in the door. It might hurt. You have to choose. Are you willing for Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Because if you are, he will be your peace. Pasture represents peace in our life. I just want you to imagine for a second a sheep just grazing in a pasture, enjoying everything that the pasture has to offer for him. It's safe to enjoy everything when God opens the door and says, go ahead, go out, enjoy it. It's safe. God is allowing you to go as a sheep and go enjoy everything that life has to offer. You know, it's hard to put a price tag on peace. Anybody who has lived without peace knows how valuable peace is. If you don't have peace in your life, it becomes like oxygen, like you're so desperate for it, like if you could just get your hands on peace. And the world that we live in today is like void of peace. You know, they're coining this period of time, the age of anxiety. It seems like everyone has a serious lack of peace in their life. We look at some of the richest people in the world, and sometimes it seems like peace is like the farthest thing from them. Like they're so rich, you would think if it was something you could buy, then they could have certainly afford it. But peace is actually more expensive than the richest people in the world could even afford. But Jesus Christ himself, bought peace for you. But the only way you can get your hands on it is if you're willing to give up control of your life and say, Jesus, I actually am willing to make you Lord of my life. I'm not going to try and control it anymore. I'm going to give up control to you. As I was uh, writing this sermon this week, I realized that this sounded a lot like a conversation that I have been having with my kids a lot lately. My kids are like outgoing and they like to go do fun things and have friends and they're not really like sit at home kind of kids. They're like go do the stuff kind of kids. So they always want to go do stuff with their friends. And generally my mentality towards that is like if it's safe and it's wise, then like I'm okay with them doing the stuff and I'll do my best to facilitate them doing the things that they want to do. And there's a lot of stuff that they want to do, let me tell you. But I do my best to try and facilitate it. There's a lot of kids and a lot of stuff that they want to do. But inevitably, there are times that they ask to do something, and I feel like it's unsafe or unwise. 
It's not like they are intentionally trying to go get in trouble and do, or do something like that, but they just want to go do something, and I feel like it's unsafe or unwise for one reason or another. So I have to tell them, I'm sorry, but I'm not comfortable with you going to do that thing that you want to do. And my kids respond amazingly, and they say, thank you for your wisdom, Father. We, we see it. And I'm like, oh, this is so great being a dad. I love it, you know. That's not how that goes. So usually my kids, they start off usually with like trying to be really super nice to me. And they do tell me I'm like the best dad in the world. And they know I'm so loving that I'll, I'll let them do the thing that they want to do. And they try and butter me up, but that doesn't work. And then my kids turn into the craziest lawyers you've ever met in your life. Like they build a case like you cannot even imagine. And they tell me, well, this person's parents, they love their kids, and they're good Christian parents, and they let their kids do it, so it seems like it must be fine for me to do it. Or they say, well, I see my friends literally doing the thing that I'm asking to do, and they're not getting hurt, and so it doesn't seem like it's unsafe. And so this is kind of when I start to get frustrated and start to get a little bit tired as a parent. And I say, sometimes I'll say sarcastic things like, I'm sorry those parents don't love their kids, and I'm sorry those kids are stupid, but I can't let you be stupid. And I'm sorry, you know, I have to be a parent that loves you. I'm sorry. And my kids will kind of argue with me a little bit, and they'll push back. And then I, you know, this is when the conversation usually heads south. And I have to let them know, I am the door to your life. It's my responsibility. It's the privilege God gave me. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't like it, but I don't have any choice in it. I am the door to your life. I have to understand what needs to come into your life and what doesn't need to come into your life. I have to protect you from other people. I have to protect you from yourself. It's my job to understand things that you don't understand and then to make decisions accordingly. Not to make the decision that you necessarily want me to make, but to make the right decision, the wise decision. And my kids usually get frustrated with me and say, okay, fine, and then they kind of walk away. Well, one time... Um, I had had that kind of a conversation um, with one of my kids, and they walked away, and I was sitting there kind of frustrated, like, man, like, why don't my kids appreciate me? Like, I'm a cool dad. I'm a fun dad. I let them do all the stuff that I can. Sometimes I have to save their butts, but they don't even appreciate it. Like, what the heck? This is so stupid. Like, why are they being mad at me? They should be grateful. And I just sat there, and I, I was just like, kind of like saying those things in my head, and then I like, just felt like I saw the Lord kind of smiling at me. Like, boy, that looks kind of familiar, doesn't it? And I'm thinking, like, no, I don't do that. Like, no, I've never seen that behavior before. And then I thought about a specific situation where April and I had asked God for something. There was something we wanted. And it felt like God said no to the thing that we asked him for and the thing that we wanted. And I kind of thought through how my kids acted, and I'm like, Man, like, that's exactly what I did. Like, first I tried to, like, tell God how awesome he is. And because you're a good God, I know you're going to give me this thing, and it's going to be awesome, and I trust you. And then he said no, and then I was like, but why not? Like, this person has it, and this makes sense, and I could serve you better if you'd give me that. And, like, I could be a better pastor, and it would make such sense. And in the end, God said no, and I didn't understand why. But of course I don't understand why, because if I served a God that thought on the level that I do, and that wouldn't be very much of a God at all. 
Like he thinks on a totally different level than I do. He understands time and history in a way that I never will. Like maybe what God, maybe I'm a small little piece and I think I'm the giant piece in God's plan. Like no, like God is so much bigger. His ways are, are different than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. He's not like I am at all. So of course I can't understand when God says no to me. And then I come to the place where I say, okay, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. Like, you're bigger than me. Your ways are different than mine. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand, but I trust you. And I'm not going to change the way that I relate to you because you did something that doesn't make sense to me. I trust you. And that would be a wise position for kids to come to with their parents as well, in case you're (laughs) wondering. The last thing that Jesus says is he says, Jesus is life. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I, may come, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Another version says to have life to the fullest. I think that's what each of us actually want. Like We want to have the fullest life possible. I want to experience everything that life has to offer. I want to have an awesome life. How many of you have lived enough life that you can say with certainty, the thief definitely does come to steal, kill, and destroy? How many of you have pushed a door open in your life that looked like a good door that should be open? Like, Lord, the pasture looks pretty good out there. I want to get out there and eat some of that grass. And you get out there and it's like, there's a thief out here that I didn't realize was out here, and he certainly did come to steal, kill, and destroy. Some of you have lost a lot to the thief. All you have to do is just look around at your life, and you can see the places where he has stolen, killed, and destroyed in your life. The thing that's so crazy is the thing that we want, the thing that we're after, the thing that we really want in life is actually found in Jesus. It's actually found in the door. So when he says, look, I'm shutting the door to the pen and you guys need to stay in, everything we need for life is right there. We're not lacking anything. We're not missing anything. We can have the fullest life right there in the pen. And when he says it's safe to go out to pasture, we can know it is safe to go out and experience all the fullness of life that's out there because he said it's safe and he's watching out for us. Would you bow your heads this morning? Jesus is our Savior. He's our protector. He's our peace. And he's our life. Maybe you see Jesus as a door in a new way this morning. You realize you've been fighting God. You've been fighting a God that's actually trying to protect you. Trying to save you. Trying to bring you peace and life. Here Jesus is trying to give you abundant life, but you think he's trying to rob you of something. It's like the same lie that Eve believed in the garden a long time ago. Jesus wants you to know something this morning. If it was good for you, he would give it to you. If it was good for you, he would give it to you. And if he's holding something back from you, It's only because it's not good for you. And he's the door that cares for you. He's the door that cares enough to keep you in the pen when you think it's time to go out there and eat, but there's a wolf out there that's going to 
he's going to get you into some trouble. Some of you who are here this morning, you can confirm firsthand that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Some of you have thought that you knew, a, you knew better than the Lord, and it's cost you dearly. You've lost a lot thinking that you knew better than Jesus. Thinking you knew what would satisfy. Thinking you know what would bring peace. You can look around at your life, and you can see the rubble from the plans that you laid, the things that seemed like good plans, but now you've got such a mess on your hands. Times that you forced the door open thinking it was good, and now you can see that really Jesus was just trying to protect you. I want to ask you this morning, would you consider surrendering afresh to the door named Jesus? Would you tell him you trust him? Would you actually trust him? Are you willing to give up control? Because he is the shepherd worth trusting. Maybe you've walked with God for a long time. And you've gotten kind of comfortable with God. And not in a good way. You've just kind of been living your life, doing what you want to do, doing the thing that makes sense to you. Thinking, you know, I've sacrificed a lot over the years and it's time for me to just be comfortable in this season of my life. Jesus still wants to be the door in your life. He still actually wants to be the Lord of your life. Because he knows what will actually satisfy in the season that you find yourself in. Maybe you're far from God. And you can just, this morning as I was preaching, you could just faintly hear the voice of your shepherd calling you. And it's been a while since you've come home. It's been a while since you've come running. It's been a while since you've looked at him as your savior. You've been looking at him as a God that had it out for you, was mad at you. But this morning, you realized He's just the God that wants you to come home so he can protect you. Or maybe you've actually never given your life to Jesus this morning. And you're kind of wondering, would he really accept me? Would he accept me if I came home? And I can tell you with certainty this morning that he would. I just want to give you an opportunity this morning for each of you to respond to the Lord. If you're someone who has walked with God for a while and you realize that you've been kind of taking back some of the control of your life, you've been taking back some of the decision-making, and you say, you know what, I want to surrender afresh to him this morning. Would you just raise your hand and say, God, I, want to, I hear you calling me, and I want to surrender afresh to you today. I don't want the control of my life. I give it up to you. I gave it up to you a long time ago, and I don't know when I decided to pick it back up and try and find a life that was comfortable, that was convenient. But I give up control to you. I surrender to you afresh this morning. You can put your hands down. Or maybe this morning you're here and you're far from God. You've been running from God for a long time. It's been a while since you felt his presence. 
It's been a while since you felt his closeness. And this morning you felt like you could faintly hear his voice calling you home. And you say, God, I want to come home. I'm scared. I don't know what it's, look like, what it's going to look like, but I want to come home. Would you just raise your hand this morning just to show God and say, God, I, I hear you calling me home, and I want to come home. You can put your hands down. Maybe this morning you've never given your life to Jesus. You've actually never made him the Lord of your life. And you say, I want him to be my Lord. I want him to be my Savior, my protector. I want to experience the life that I can in Jesus. Would you just raise your hand and say, Jesus, I want to give my life to you today. I don't totally know what it's going to look like. I don't know if you can take my broken life and put it back together, but I want to give it a try. I want to make you Lord of my life. Lord, I bring to you uh, all these people that are in these various places this morning, but each one of us have the same thing in common. We each need to surrender to you. We're not surrendering to a God that's mad at us. Lord, even if you've got to yank us out of a ditch and it hurts like crazy and it feels like you're mad, you're not mad at us. You're just doing what you need to do to protect us and to keep us safe. And we surrender afresh to you. God, will you take our lives and do what you want to with us? We give up control. Lord, when we try and take control and try and, try and produce something that we want in our life, we just make such a mess trying. But Lord, we know that we can trust you. And so we give up control afresh this morning and surrender to you. In your name I pray, amen. I want you guys, as you go through this week, there's going to be hundreds, maybe thousands, some of you have doors that you walk through. And with every door that you walk through, starting when you leave this sanctuary and head into your car, I want you to remember that you surrendered afresh to Jesus. Let every door you walk through be a reminder that your life is not your own. He paid the price and bought your life, and you are his. So be reminded of that every time you walk through a door. Have a blessed week.